If you are a guest with us, I'm really glad you're here. We began a sermon series last week called Blessed, where we're looking at this question that people have asked throughout the centuries, and we find ourselves asking today, who is well off? Another way to ask it is, who is truly blessed? And, and what's interesting is that you'll find a lot of people going back to read writers and what they had to say about this topic. You see people talking about Stoics and how, uh, what the Stoics had to say about the well-off life. We, we see um, people referring to Aristotle. What did Aristotle have to say about the well-off life? Uh, but rarely do we find that people go to see what Jesus had to say about the well-off life. Uh, rarely do people think of Jesus as the smartest person to ever live. Um, we, we see this in our current world. Many associate Jesus simply with the afterlife and, and that reality of your soul being eternal is deeply true. But as great as a savior Jesus is, many don't look to see that Jesus was the best teacher to ever live. How do we approach this life? Jesus would like to help you. Uh, Jonathan Pennington wrote a book, uh, I commend it to you if you wanna read it, called Jesus the Great Philosopher. And in the beginning of the book, he has us imagine this scene. Uh, he says, imagine you, you walk into this church. It's a huge, huge, giant church. And, um, and as you walk in, they have these ornate, beautiful banners that you see hanging down all throughout the sanctuary. And, and you see these descriptions on these banners describing the person of Jesus. You imagine the scene, one banner that says Emmanuel, one banner that says friend of sinners, another banner that says king of the universe, and then the next one that says philosopher. It, it strikes us a bit off today, and I think he brings up this scene for us because it exposes a weakness to our discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus, that Jesus, yes, is the great redeemer of all, that we know. Yes, he is the friend of sinners, but philosopher. And when Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, he begins by saying, who is truly blessed in this life? He begins this sermon saying, blessed are you. And, and that language in the first century would have been code language for what a philosopher would have said at that time. Blessed are you. Who is well off? Who is truly blessed? Who are the ones that are flourishing in this world right now? And today we will struggle, maybe you will struggle, to believe Jesus actually knows what he is talking about with our next blessing of the character of who has the good life. Jesus tells us this in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I don't know if you can imagine this scene in the first century on that Galilean hillside. 
Uh, we read earlier in Matthew, Jesus uh, has been gathering these followers and he is healing them of all their illnesses and diseases. And as they sit on that hillside in Galilee in the first century, you have to imagine that this crowd has, has come expectant. Of, they have been healed. Uh, many of them have their Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt on as they sit there to listen to him. Uh, because let's face it, we love the Jesus who heals. That Jesus is easy to sell. And, and right in the middle of, of healing all these people, they're sitting there, they're expectant. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're probably sitting there wondering, did, did, he, did he just say what I thought he said? The mourner is the one with the good life? This leads us to the first point we need to understand, and that's this, the need for our mourning. Jesus invites us to see that the blessed life includes and does not exclude our mourning. I think Jesus tells us about three aspects to our mourning we need to put under the microscope this morning to examine. And the first one is this, that we would mourn over our sin. The desert fathers of the third century were very attuned to this idea, and that is sin as sickness. That, that, that sin is like a cancer inside of us that is eroding away the inside. And the first thing that we must do with cancer, much like sin, is to expose it and to name its reality that it is there. And the desert father said, it's one thing to expose it, but it's an entirely other thing to mourn it. They said it this way, quote, he who cries over his sins is greater than those who revive the dead, end quote. True confession, true repentance. In the Old Testament, uh, there was uh, a, the book of Psalms that we have, and, and, and the, the Psalms, there's a section of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And, and these Psalms were songs that were sung on their way to Jerusalem, and why they call them the Psalms of Ascent is wherever you are in Israel, wherever you are, you're always traveling up in elevation to get to Jerusalem. If you've been to Israel, you know this, you're always going up to Jerusalem and to the temple. And so these would be the, the songs that they would sing in that ascent to the temple to worship God. And we find this one psalm, Psalm 130, and this is how the psalmist puts it. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist is going up to the temple, uh, into the presence of God in the temple, but notice what he says. If you, Lord, keep track of my sin, who could stand in your presence? Now, in our day, this type of personal audit is met with great opposition. <laughs> um, uh, sin, iniquities, that is so old and archaic and regressive. 
But what is interesting is Christians and non-Christians are writing about this today, that rejecting the old blueprints of religion and turning to modern ones is not helping us. And they're telling us because we don't recognize and mourn our own brokenness, we will be extremely quick to find fault in you. One of the places I've seen this in my own life is when we've been traveling on airplanes. Uh, a while ago, we traveled as a family, our family of five, and the kids were younger. And at this point, I had Caleb, our youngest, sitting in my lap. And while he was sitting in my lap, uh, we were watching a movie, he began putting his feet out and pushing on the back of the chair in front of us. And I tried to catch it as quick as I could, but he started pushing pretty hard. And in just that moment, the, the man that was sitting in front of us turned around and he said, um, hey, uh, he's putting his feet on my seat. And I said, I, yes, I understand. I am so sorry. So sorry about that. And we were doing fine uh, for about 10 minutes while we continued to watch this movie. But sure enough, when I wasn't looking, Caleb began kicking his chair again. Now, once I caught it, I was thinking, oh, no, he's going to turn around. He didn't turn around that time, but I knew what he was thinking. He, he was thinking about what, what's going on. And I'm thinking in my head, oh, oh man, I was trying so hard. It was an accident. I promise you, I am a really good parent. <laughs> Fast forward a few years, I'm flying on an airplane. This time I'm flying by myself. I'm in an aisle seat, which is the only way to fly. And there is this little kicking happening behind me. It was very subtle at first. But then it began to just get harder and harder uh, to the point I turned around to see what was going on. And I found a five-year-old little boy just sitting behind me. And I said to him, hey, hey, hey buddy, um, could you please not kick my chair? To which he looked at me and laughed. <laughs> and so I popped him. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. His mom was sitting right there. She began to apologize. I'm, I'm so sorry, this won't happen again. Fast forward, maybe 10 minutes later, and my chair was being kicked again. But what do I come up with the sort of conversation in my head? I, I, I don't go, oh, you know, she's just a parent. She's just trying to do exactly what I would do. What, what am I doing in my head? Clearly, this woman is a horrible parent. <laughs> it, 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 if they would just leave this child with me for the next couple of weeks, we would get all of this straightened out. Why am I so quick to not look at my sin, but vilify this woman? It's called sin and I haven't mourned it. When we turn our noses up at coworkers that we work with, coworkers that to us and maybe everyone else have this massive character flaw that we can see so well, right? You know, it's very obvious. Um, why is it we can see this and name it, but then the second someone else in our company sits us down to talk about a flaw on our performance review, we flip out. 
Uh, some of us have families we live with or roommates we live with, and, and that is a wonderful case study and the things we get to see in a house together, right? And, 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 and it's amazing that the, the conversation, you know, the things, the habits that we have that we can look, overlook so easily, but how quick we are to notice the habits of the others that we live with. And the conversations that we have just going over all of their issues in our head. Why do they do that? Why do they leave that open? Why the shoes there? Why are we so quick to overlook our stuff but vilify the other? It is called sin. And we have to mourn it. Jonathan Haidt uh, is a wonderful author, and he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And basically the premise of the book is he says, you and I, our internal framework, uh, he is not a Christian, you and I, our eternal framework is bent towards self-righteousness. Me and my tribe, my religious views, my political affiliation, my team, the, the way I see the world is right and good, but, but those people, uh, those people are the issue. Uh, those people need to see the light, like me. That we paint the world into good and evil. Uh, Victor Frankl may be the one person I might be able to give a pass on this because of what he experienced in his life. Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist who was also a Holocaust survivor. And, and you imagine the atrocities and the evil that he saw lived out every day in the concentration camps. Um, the, 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 the evil, the injustice, the racism, the oppression that he experienced in that season of his life, how easy it would have been for him to name and say, uh, we are the good guys, those are the evil guys. Uh, but Frankel, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, said, there is no perfect race. Everyone carries this evil within them. He said, all have sinned, all carry the marks of iniquity, like the psalmist says, and beginning to mourn our sin is actually the first step in the path of transforming it. Through our tears of brokenness, God begins to transform and to heal. So first, we have to mourn our sin. Second, we have to mourn our story. Mourn our story. What do I mean? Well, our culture has taught us, if you want to get ahead in this world then leave behind whatever is holding you back. Bury the past, bury the pain, bury what you've gone through, bury whatever you've experienced. George Henry Powell was a Welsh songwriter at the turn of the 1900s, and he wrote a song that I think aptly speaks to our modern world. He said this in the song, what's the use of worrying? It's never, it never was worthwhile. So pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. Now I have no idea what an old kit bag is, but I know what smile, smile, smile means. This happens to 
every student who scrolls social media looking at someone else's life, why, why do they have it so much together? It, it, it's, it's scrolling or seeing pictures of, of other people's family photos and, and, and you're thinking, man, they seem to have it all perfect. Now, when we step back, we, we know that that picture, if you've ever taken that family photo, is, is not real, right? We've, we've all been in that family photo. Everybody, everybody's rushed in to, to take that picture behind every great one picture. There's 10,000 awful ones. Because why? Some kid was picking their nose. Someone was yelling at someone else. Someone was fighting with someone else. Dad has said, if you don't stop acting up, there will be no dinner. Dad, dad says in that moment, if, if you just smile, everyone gets ice cream. We've all been there. In that moment, in that picture, longing to get the perfect one, and then we get it. We filter it. We crop it, and then we put a caption on it. Out for a casual walk. <laughs> and an impromptu photo with the people I love. I could not ask for a better family. And caption. We all know that when we step back, reality, but in the moment, we feel inadequacy. We feel somehow I'm falling behind. Somehow I don't have it together. Why am I not the kind of parent they are? Why am I not the kind of student they are? Why am I not the kind of person they are? And the reality is rather than dealing with the issue of what's going on inside of me, we've embraced that song, just smile, smile, smile. And we push down mourning our story and what we've gone through with this incessant need to catch up to them, whoever them is in your life. And what we need to do is begin to dig down and unearth the real pieces that are shattered in our story rather than covering them up. Uh, about 10 years ago, I lived in LA and uh, I lived in a two bedroom apartment with five other guys. Um, I wouldn't call that the good life. And uh, I'll just say that having five guys in a two bedroom apartment, there was a peculiar odor that always seemed to exist uh, with that many people in one place. Uh, but I, I got into a place where I was the longest tenured person in this apartment complex. And so I got the privileged parking spot inside the gate. I didn't have to park on the street anymore. Um, and I began to notice as I was pulling into my parking spot over time, um, there began to be a breaking of the, the concrete pavement right where I parked. And then a couple weeks went by and I began to notice the water was beginning to bubble through that spot. And then a couple more weeks went by and then the whole pavement in that area began to completely disintegrate. And so I went to our landlord and I, I said, hey, listen, there, there's an issue out in uh, the parking lot area and I, I just wanna let you guys know so you guys can actually address the issue. And um, literally two days later, I, I came home from school, I, I pull in and what do I see? Fresh 
coated pavement right there. But in a couple weeks, I began to notice the, the pavement began to break up right there. And then a couple weeks later, the, the water began to bubble through in the same spot. And then a couple more weeks went by, and then the pavement began to disintegrate right in that same area. And so I went uh, to the manager, uh, the landowner, and I said, um, hey, just want you to know that spot I told you about, yeah, it's back. Um, you guys probably should dig down and actually deal with whatever's going on. Um, and then a day later, I come out, and what do I see? What do you think? Fresh pavement. Clear, fresh, beautiful pavement. And then two weeks later, the ground began to break again. Water began to bubble up. And they probably still haven't dealt with the issue. <laughs> Why do we not deal with the issue? It's because it's hard. And it's easier to just keep covering up and moving on. Smile, smile, smile. Why don't we mourn our story? Because it is hard work and it is painful. I remember last year I was in therapy and I'm sitting there with the counselor and we're talking through my story and I'm just moving along through the story and, and the counselor keeps stopping at points and he's saying, oh, Tyler, I'm, that must have been really hard to go through that. Uh, but you know me, uh, prancing along, smile, smile, smile. Oh, no, no, it's okay. Everybody's gone through something. But he would not stop. But Tyler, that, man, that, that must have been really painful. Oh, hey, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? I am throwing fresh pavement all over that office. <laughs> Tyler, that must have been really hard. And, and, and along the way, I am still not getting it. I am such a bad Counselee that he had to send me home with homework. Uh, Tyler, you just need to sit down and grieve your story. And in a smile, smile, smile culture, it just doesn't exist. To mourn our story allows us to see and name that there were things outside of our control that God sees and that God is with us. I remember the story uh, in Genesis, the story of Hagar. Uh, Hagar has, has birthed a child to Abraham. Uh, and, but what happens is there is a better child that comes along from a better woman, and Hagar is banished. And as she's moving about in this new world of pain and exile, God appears to her, and Hagar's response is, uh, you are the God who sees me. You're, you're the God who knows me. God sees you, friends. He sees what you've gone through. He knows your story and that he is with you. And we have to walk through this part of mourning our story for two reasons. The first reason, so that God can do his deep work of healing in us rather than a fresh coat of pavement. Um, you may be here, we have a grief share support group starting this Thursday. And this is for people who've experienced the loss of loved ones. 
And the grieving process of that can be difficult. So the next step for you may be just the deep work of healing, of walking with others through the pain of what you faced. And so you can go on our Church Center app or on our events page if you wanna do that this week. That starts Thursday. So we have to mourn our story to get the deep work of healing. And secondly, when we mourn our story, we begin to find the grace and compassion to enter in and mourn the story of others. That's the third need of our mourning, is to mourn others, our neighbor's story. But you may be wondering, well, how do I mourn well my neighbor's story? Well, there is a great verse to guide us. The Apostle Paul said it this way, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, Here's Paul's way for you this morning of testing how is your mourning for others going? Is it going well? Do you rejoice in your inner man, in your inner spirit with those who rejoice? And do you mourn in your inner spirit with those who are mourning? And if we can be honest this morning, how often do we flip those? That the verse maybe for our normal life is weep with those who rejoice and rejoice with those who weep. Uh, how, How often do you find you mourn when your friend is rejoicing? And how often do you rejoice in your spirit when your friend is mourning? Friend comes to you, um, they've been praying about an opportunity, a a, a job promotion in their career. Um, They've come to you, please be praying about this, but now they wanna get together with you. They wanna sit you down, because they want you, because they knew you were praying, because you had been encouraging, they want you to hear the great news. The promotion came. Uh, My career is accelerating. I'm gonna now make way more money than you, my friend. And you say, that's great. But inside, you are dying. You are mourning. Same friend you've been praying for. They they, they pray pray for my job, pray for this situation, pray for a promotion, pray for what I'm I'm going through. They come to you, Tyler, I want to get together. Uh, You you may even bring it up. Hey, I've been praying for you. Whatever happened with the job? Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to tell you. They passed me over. You say, oh, I am so sorry. But inside, you're saying, thank God. Because if he or she would have gotten that promotion, I would have felt inadequate. I would have felt insignificant. I would have felt unimportant. I've shared this before. Lane, our middle son, has a mind like I don't understand for questions and particularly questions about God and wanting to understand who is God and how does he work in this world. Um, And he has a lot of questions and those questions, frankly, most of the time, I don't have a great answer. And one time we were driving somewhere, he's in the back seat um, I, I, he, he's, he's pelting me like a paintball gun of questions. Just boo, 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 boo. And, uh, and, and every question I was like, hey, buddy, I'm really, really sorry. I just don't know how to answer that question. And he, I finally, out of a place of frustration, he just says to me from the back seat, he says, geez, dad, for being a pastor, you sure don't know a lot. <laughs> I 
I think this speaks to how we mourn well. We don't need to have the answers. We don't need to say anything, actually. We just need to see our neighbor and sit with them in their story, in their mourning, in their sadness. Henry Nouwen put it this way. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not healing, not curing, that is a friend who cares. So this is our need for our mourning. Mourn our sin, mourn our story, mourn our neighbor's story. And Jesus invites us and he says, if you can do that, if you can join into that kind of character of life, you will experience the life of the one who is truly blessed. Not because of your predicament, but because of his promise. What do I mean? Well, that brings us to the second point, the hope in our morning. Look at this beatitude again with me. Jesus gives us a promise to this blessing. He tells us, the one who mourns, they shall be comforted. There is a certainty to it. How can Jesus make that promise to you that he says, whatever you're going through, whatever you've mourned in your life, you shall be comforted. Maybe this morning you have something you are carrying and Jesus tells us, you can trust me. You can walk with me. You can follow me because of this promise. God will comfort you. Friends, here's what God is saying to you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows what you're going through. And he will comfort you. And he comforts us in two ways. First, he comforts you because our God has mourned as well. Our God is not distant from our cries he sees our cries, he hears our cries, and through Jesus, he has experienced at the deepest fundamental level our cries. The prophet Isaiah reminds us, in your morning, maybe this morning, you feel that grief. He says, look to the cross. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted by God. No matter the sin you carry, no matter the scars of your story, no matter the tears you may have cried this week, Jesus is a God who is not far away, but is intimately closer than you can imagine because he has mourned just like you. B.B. Warfield uh, was a great reformed theologian uh, and he said at one point, he said, do you know what the greatest and most common emotion Jesus you will find in the gospels? It is grief. That Jesus grieved. Uh, he grieved as he was at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. God raised him from the dead. He grieved as he had that conversation with the rich young ruler, inviting him into the truly blessed life. And he walked away 
for just more money. Jesus knows and sees, and you can have hope this morning because he knows exactly what you're going through. But the second thing is we can have hope in our morning because God is not done. God is not done. And that is the promise that you and I can cling to. Our passage says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It doesn't say they might be comforted. It doesn't say, hey, they most likely will be comforted. It says what? They shall, they shall be comforted. There is a certainty to our hope that we know the future for the one who surrenders their life to God, for the one who finds their identity with God. They will be comforted by God no matter the shattered glass of their story, no matter the regrets they carry, no matter the things they have suffered. Those who put their trust in Jesus shall be comforted. Friends, wouldn't it be amazing to know the future? Um, I love this month. September is one of my favorite months. Um, I, I love this month, one, because kids are back in school. Um, and parents, we can all agree on that. Um, I love September in Florida because um, in a couple months, it's gonna dip below 90 degrees for once. But I think most of all, what I love about September is that college football has started back. And my wife just rolled her eyes. <laughs> uh, I read a story uh, by writer Alan Jacob talking about his uncle, Bob. And uh, Bob uh, is from Alabama. And Bob is a very big Alabama football fan. Um, but Bob cannot watch the games. It, he, 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 he can't deal with it. So he tapes the game and then he calls his sister after the game is over and he says, uh, did they win or lose? And if they won, he'll go back and actually watch the game. But if they lose, he deletes the recording. And it got me thinking about Bob. I feel for him because he is longing for certainty in his life. He's longing to know the future. What is going to happen? and it's crippling his joy in the present. But followers of Jesus, we can trust God even through the worst moments of our grief and mourning because we know he will comfort us. God is not done. Zig Ziglar uh, was a motivational speaker and author, and he was also a Christian, and he shared about his deepest mourning of grief and how God met him in the death of his daughter, and he wrote this. The longest 24 hours of my life were those after my daughter's death. While I was dreaming half asleep, half awake, I kept thinking my daughter was wondering when her daddy was going to come get her. The next morning, I took a walk and was praying and crying the whole way. When I returned, the Lord spoke in such a distinct way. She's fine. She's with me. You're going to be fine too. I'm all you need. Just keep walking. Keep talking. Keep praying. Keep crying. Friends, blessed are those who mourn. 
for they shall be comforted. God is saying to you this morning, keep walking, keep praying, keep crying. I am all you need. And for those who grieve, they will be held close and I will comfort you. Friends, God is with you. And one day he will wipe away all tears. One day he will restore all that is broken and lost and he will make all things new. Would you stand as we close? Jesus of Nazareth invites you again this morning to receive blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Friends, what situation right now in your life do you need to be reminded that God sees you, that he knows what you are going through and that you can know the future? You shall be comforted. In the midst of your crying, you can know that he cares. Keep walking, keep praying, keep crying. You shall be comforted. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you know our stories, and like Hagar, we can say, you are a God who sees. So remind us today that you are with us. Remind us in the person of Jesus that you know our cries. And remind us you are a God who is not done. And one day you will set all things right in us and in our world. And that is a reason to hope. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.